0: Welcome to the Future Focus Leader. I'm your host, Dr. Chris gross Episode one, what is the fourth industrial revolution? The fourth industrial revolution is, is the foundation of everything that we do about preparing leaders and preparing organizations for the future of work. It is, it is the, the brick and mortar of the house upon which future-focused leadership development is made. And it's a really important topic to understand, so that's why we're going to dive into it here over uh, this first episode. So to understand the Fourth Industrial Revolution, we really have to have a little bit of a history lesson here and go back to the beginning. It's the Fourth Industrial Revolution, implying that there have been three other revolutions Uh, that have made up the modern economy. When we look at the beginning, um, what I would call 1IR, or the first industrial revolution, this is really defined by a couple of things. What powered it, and what were the technological advances? I'm also interested in in what the, the span of years is around each of these industrial revolutions, because I I think that is a really important topic that I want to point out to you as well. But when we look at 1IR, what powered it was steam and water. These were the means of mechanical production. This is an extraordinary era in human history. It can be traced back to 1784, Uh, The technology that grew out of this was the first mechanical loom. You know what a loom is? It's been a long time since I've actually even heard the word loom. Um, As far as I remember, the loom was, was something that was made for weaving textiles. So instead of textiles being woven by hand, the mechanical loom allows for an automation and sort of uh, mechanization of textile production. There was also another important innovation during the first industrial revolution. That was the advent of the steam-powered engine. Puffing Billy was the name of the first one. This was developed in the UK. So if you have the mechanical loom and you have a steam-powered engine... If you remember your history lessons in the United States, that meant the boom of the textile industry. Cotton was king, big cotton in the South. You had the cotton gin from Eli Whitney. This allowed individuals, communities, society at large to essentially go from an agrarian self-subsistence, do-it-yourself, grow-your-own wheat and potatoes, and, and make it work on your own to an industrial economy. The faster we could produce textiles, the faster we could farm, really the less need there was for people to sit around and, and grow their own goods and make their own goods in the cottage industry that in, in, in the United States... Had really uh, defined a way of life. So one IR, the first industrial revolution, lasts for a- about a hundred years, because economists mark the second industrial revolution around 1870. So just 14 years short of 100 years from the first mechanical loom. The second industrial revolution is powered by something we use every day, something that wouldn't even be possible for you to listen to this podcast were it not for this innovation, electricity. 2IR is powered by electricity, and it it really, really enables mass production, The first assembly line, electric powered assembly line, comes in the year 1870. That's the innovation. That's the major innovation. Now, what does the assembly line do? The assembly line not only speeds up production, so you've got these steam-powered goods and, and, and materials being produced from the first Industrial Revolution... You've got steam-powered locomotives that allow us to take these goods and services around the country. The automation of the assembly line and the innovation of the assembly line really allows the processing and the manufacture of these goods to speed up. And it had to speed up because there was increased demand. People weren't sitting around working their own farms and hoeing their own beans. They were they were specializing. They, were, they, they had jobs. They had economic needs now because they weren't manufacturing their own goods. There was a need for more goods. This is the, this is the Industrial Revolution, as an aside, that we associate in the United States, where I live, um, that we associate with people like Henry Ford in Detroit, where I'm from, with people like Andrew Carnegie, in the steel industry, John D. Rockefeller. Um, These are the titans of industry whose fortunes still, to this day, exist and provide an economic foundation for our communities. So the second industrial revolution, at least in the United States, is really the one that we typically call the industrial revolution. And it changed everything. It absolutely changed everything. It allowed for division of labor. It allowed for specialization. It allowed for really now a serious workforce and the need to seriously develop a workforce and a need for public education to ensure that the economy that was being built was powered by people who could do three things. Reading, Writing and arithmetic. If you couldn't do those three things, you were no good to the emerging industrialized economy in in this country. Reading, writing, and arithmetic. Now, since 1870, and uh, the 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 boom of that educational model, not a whole heck of a lot has changed, folks. Our education system is still founded on reading, writing, and arithmetic. It's time for a change, because here comes 3IR. 3IR can be traced back, some people trace this back to 1969. Free Love, Woodstock radical social change the baby boomers had watched their greatest generation parents really round out the second industrial revolution of the greatest generation or what's what what Tom Brokaw has called the greatest generation and I believe it these folks were tough they they grew up in in the beginning uh, of, essentially, the second Industrial Revolution. They lived through the Great Depression. They fought wars on two continents, three continents, really, if you count Pearl Harbor. And this generation had built something that the baby boomers were somewhat growing tired of. They were resisting, there was revolution, society was changing, it was time for a new industrial way of being. And in 1969, the first programmable logic controller came into being. 3IR was still powered by electricity. But this electricity was moving information through systems that allowed for more effectiveness of processing information, more efficiency of processing information, and greater connectivity. The third industrial revolution was all about the power of the microchip. In the rapid from nineteen sixty. Think about that. When, <laughs> when you were smoking dope at Woodstock, the first programmable logic controller was invented, and this thing has accelerated in its development to the the magical high powered big data producing machine that nearly every one of us carry around in our pocket the smartphone was from 1870 to 1969 again about another 100 years well we associate the heroes of the third industrial revolution with people like Steve Jobs with people like Bill Gates and even with names that we still see in the news every day Mark Zuckerberg this was the this was the dot com boom this was the beginning of social media this this was the third industrial revolution this was the rise of the information age no longer were we just Concerned with producing widgets to drive the economy. We weren't just making things. We were making informational products. We were providing informational services through the amazing connectivity and computing power that was that was now in, in everybody's hands with the personal computer. I remember my first... Personal computer. What a piece of junk that thing was compared to what we can do now. What was the game? What was the game that we would play when when those first Apple computers came out? It was a Frontier kind of a game. Um, have to look that one up. But this was the third industrial revolution. from 1969 to to today, um, this one moved real fast, guys. It's the third Industrial revolution made the first and second industrial revolutions look like a <laughs> like we were going back to the Stone Age, but from three IR to where we are now for i r that was like a blink of an eye that was half the time about 48 years from the first programmable logic to where we are today the fourth industrial revolution this is this is where we are the fourth industrial revolution we're in the earliest phases of this is defined and powered by 5 megatrends digitization robotics artificial intelligence automation 3D printing automation digitization robotics artificial intelligence 3D printing these these megatrends that are the, again, we're not talking about powered by steam or electricity. We're, we're talking about a, a form of energy that is innovation incarnate, that is speed, that is production of big data. How? Through things like wearables, wearable devices, even an iPhone that you carry around in your pocket. That thing produces so much data every day as you travel around that we're talking about an information age that is not like 3IR. We're talking about a digital age that is fusing, literally fusing the physical world with the digital world and the biological world. And I'm gonna give you three awesome case studies in this in this episode that shows you that the fourth industrial revolution is here, it's now, it's promising, but there's some pitfalls too, friends. There are some pitfalls. So The Fourth Industrial Revolution, um, I think one of the greatest books, and I'll put a link to this, um, there's all read, there's a link to the whole uh, my whole summer reading list that I tackled this summer. There's five great books on there. I, I read a heck of a lot more in, in writing, finishing uh, my, my book on this topic, Leadership 4.0, Strategies for the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Um, and in starting my next book project, I just found, I think there these five books on this summer reading list are so essential for, for if you work with leaders faced with fourth industrial revolution challenges, you got to read this book. If you, if you coach or advise or develop leaders, uh, you've got to read these books and, and, and take a look at how they impact your industry because these five books, it's available on my blog, leadership4ir.com. That's leadership4ir.com. You can download this reading list for free. There's, I, I give you a nice little summary of all of them. No affiliate links. I'm not, a, I'm not interested in selling books for these people, although they are great books, and I have bought all of them. But, the the book that really changed my thinking about the fourth industrial revolution is is entitled ironically the fourth industrial revolution and it's by a fellow by the name of klaus schwab he's the founder and executive chairman of the world economic forum guys these are the these are the titans of the fourth industrial revolution who who meet in Davos, Switzerland every year to talk about big ideas and to change how leaders are thinking about where industry is going. It's a bunch of economists and executives and thought leaders from around the world. And the theme of their meeting last year in 2016, which led to Schwab's book of the same title, was was on the Fourth Industrial Revolution. This book was just published in 2017, so I highly recommend you pick it up. If you want to learn more, um, he's got some great examples of how these five megatrends are changing everybody's business. Nobody's business is safe. And he begins to get into nobody's communities are safe either. None of us are immune to these five megatrends. If you own an iPhone, you are not a passive uh, observer or or sideline spectator of this mega trend you're on the train buddy so get used to it because the future is here it's now and it's filled with promises and perils so i mentioned those three case studies i'm going to hit those three case studies and then we're going to get out of here for today because you've all got busy lives and things to do to transform the future work and so do i so the three case studies are this Um, I said the future is here. I said the future is now. I said the future is both promising and perilous, and I want to give you three case studies that that bear that out. Um, March first, two thousand seventeen, a little company by the name of Domino's Pizza, just Domino's these days. They dropped the pizza. Uh, <laughs> I don't think they literally dropped the pizza, but but they dropped it in their brand at least. So Domino's on March 1st introduces the world to Drew, D-R-U. And maybe I'll put a a picture of Drew uh, on the Leadership4IR.com blog, but Drew is the cutest darn little pizza delivery robot. Drew has these four little wheels at his base, he almost looks like the the robot from uh, I think it was Rocky II. If you remember the movie Rocky II, when Paulie had that that big nineteen eighties looking robot that followed him around. Drew's face or head or top unit, whatever you want to call it, it's probably the oven. Uh, Drew's face just is just exactly what you would expect. A little four-wheel drive uh, automated robot to look like. Well, on March 1st, 2017, so just a few months ago, Domino's announced the partnership with uh, this major robotics company to introduce Drew to the world. Now, Drew is going to be, he's already been wheeling pizzas around Europe, as, as I understand it, but Drew could be coming to, if you have a Domino's in your neighborhood, Drew could be coming to a neighborhood near you. When, when I talk about it, Drew, I always say the best thing about Drew is you don't have to tip him. <laughs> so, automated pizza delivery, August 29th, 2017. This is just a few weeks ago, friends. Domino's, which is headquartered in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I had the great pleasure of living for about six years, is just down the street from Dearborn. Michigan where Ford Motor Company is got operations and they announced on August 29th a partnership with Domino's to launch their autonomous driver delivery program. So not only if Drew can't make it down your city sidewalk where I from from the the pizza shop to where I live in Chicago in a, in a high-rise. Well, if you live out in the sticks, this Ford Fusion that is self-driving can get your pizza to you. I don't know. It's probably not going to be in 30 minutes or less because um, I've been in one of these self-driving vehicles, as I'll share in the next case. But So these two automation, one of those five megatrends, automated self-driving GPS-navigated tools are here now, and they're impacting the physical world of how you receive your pizza. Number two, the future's now. I go to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, about every two weeks to visit clients, and on June 1st, 2017, I'll throw a picture of this up on the Leadership 4-I-R blog, too. I had the pleasure of taking my first self-driving driving Uber As if Uber hasn't already disrupted the transportation industry enough, Uber now is teaching these Volvo wagons how to drive around the streets of Pittsburgh. Now, ironically, when you get into one of these things, after you request it on the app and you say, I'm okay with putting my life in the hands of a self-driving Volvo wagon, when you get into this thing, you have to sign a little waiver. There's like a little iPad in the in the back seat, and then that iPad through the duration of your trip shows you uh, a digital rendering a digital rendering of everything that this rotating orb on the top of the vehicle sees. It's it's got something like eight thousand lasers. I think the the guy said that are collecting data and creating a digital rendering of the of the. The streets and the surroundings and the people that are coming in and out of traffic. And all of that data, I said, so I guess what's in the back of this is probably some pretty badass hardware that's gathering all this information. And ironically, when you get into the self driving Uber, there are two drivers um, one is monitoring the technology and the functionality of the of the car the suv the other is actually sitting behind the wheel and from time to time takes over but i've been in three of these now the car drives itself with you in it as a passenger for 80 to 90 percent of the trip the driver kind of pulls out of wherever he's picking you up or she's picking you up and uh you know, just pulls up to the parking spot. The rest of the driving purely automated. And you can't help but think to yourself, when you're in this vehicle, what the heck would happen? What would it feel like to be sitting in the back seat of this thing, you know, with a robot in the front? It it reminds me of the movie Total Recall with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Do you remember that movie Total Recall from the I think it was the late 80s or early 90s. If you haven't seen that, go see it. There's a scene in there where there's a robotic cab driver, and it takes place in the future, and you're thinking to yourself, I am. I'll never live to see the day of that. Well, Uber's self-driving program is having much success. I think there have only been two accidents in Pittsburgh, both caused by human error of other people screwing with the Autonomous driving Uber. It wasn't the self driving Uber's fault. The system gets smarter every day as all of the brilliant data scientists from Carnegie Mellon there in Pittsburgh have migrated over to Uber to oversee the research and analytics behind this program. And the self driving Uber could be coming to a neighborhood near you. One last bit on this Uber program. Why Pittsburgh? I asked the, the fellows who were in my car, um, why Pittsburgh? They said, well, basically two reasons. We've got old streets that are really hard to navigate, lots of one ways, lots of traffic, lots of merging through the tunnel on your way to the airport from downtown. So if you can make it in Pittsburgh, you can make it anywhere. Um, they also have all four weather conditions, icy roads, rainy roads. Um, so if you can make it in Pittsburgh, you can make it anywhere. Second reason, Carnegie Mellon. The geniuses at that fine institution have been instrumental in excelling, accelerating this program. And uh, incidentally, off the record, uh, in my one of my... Three driving experiences. One of the drivers said, I said, How close are we getting to these things actually driving themselves? And he said, Oh, it's, you know, that's going to be a little while. He goes, But we're getting very close to only having one driver in the car. So that means, and I said, Is it going to (laughs) be, which one of you guys is getting the axe? Is it going to be the guy in the passenger seat collecting the data? Or is it going to be the guy in the driver's seat? They said, they laughed and they said, no, no, it's going to be the guy in the passenger seat. Um, there will still be drivers for the near term future. But in the foreseeable future, they said it's not going to be long because these things, the technology side of it is there, the, the machine learning side of it is there, and they're going to be driving to a neighborhood near you very, very soon. Example number three, the future is here, the future is now. This one is about the future being both promising and perilous. Uh, August 30th, 2017. So that's just from the recording of this podcast just a couple of weeks ago. Scott Gottlieb, the FDA commissioner on CTL019er, is quoted as saying this, and I quote, We're entering a new frontier in medical innovation with the ability to reprogram a patient's own cells to attack a deadly cancer. To reprogram a patient's own cells to attack a deadly cancer. What Mr. Gottlieb was referencing was a cancer protocol treatment called Chimera. Chimera is a protocol produced by Novartis, the pharmaceutical company, and basically what they found is this. There's a condition out there called acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Acute lymphoblastic leukemia, ALL. And that particular form of leukemia affects hundreds of adolescents and young adults every year. And what they found is that if you were diagnosed with ALL, essentially your young person in your life was basically issued a death sentence or at least a very, very unhealthy and unhappy way of being This form of leukemia is resistant to all other remedies until chimera. Chimera, it has produced remission of ALL in 83% of the pediatric and young adult patients plagued with ALL. 83%. Now, Their trials were based on 63 cases of ALL, but an 83% effectiveness rate, I will gamble on those odds. I'll put chips down on those odds. So with the FDA approval of Chimera, this treatment is going to be available in 32 hospitals around the United States, probably the Mayo's and Cleveland clinics of the world. But the future's here, it's now, it's promising. But it's also a little perilous and scary. When I, when I think of this one, we're essentially playing God with human genetics. Not something that I, I, that I remember when they started mapping the human genome that we thought was gonna be possible for quite some time. When they started mapping the human genome, in the third industrial Revolution, mind you, we thought it was going to take a long time, but computing power, digital advancement accelerated not in a linear fashion, but it it it's a it's a geometric curve <laughs> that's a that's a nonlinear exponential curve that computing power is accelerating at. That's called Moore's Law. I'll get into that in another episode. But that rapid acceleration has allowed for a deep, deep understanding of the human genome, which has led to these biological technologies. It's the fusion for IR, as I said, is the fusion of the digital, physical, and biological world. Chimera is is a perfect example of of a technology, a medical innovation that's grown out of that fusion impacting the biological world and the physiology of these young people that acute lymphoblastic leukemia impacts. So I agree with Gottlieb. We are entering a new frontier. Listen to the language that he even uses, where we can reprogram, as if we're reprogramming a a computer, a patient's own cells to attack a deadly cancer. It's scary, folks. When you think of the price tag on Chimera, if it works, and there's an 83% likelihood that it probably will in your young person, God forbid, should they be diagnosed with ALL, there's a $475,000 price tag attached to that. And I'm not sure how much of, of your great insurance is going to cover that treatment. But who wouldn't go all in on a half a million to save their kid's life? I bet you'd take it on. I'd take it on. Heck, I'd take it on for a friend or a family member's kid. But who pays for it? And then, it's this is also perilous because is it only the wealthy who can afford this? Is it only the rich? What's that going to do for confidence in in governments and in institutions and the and the leaders who regulate how we use Chimera and CRISPR and all the other kinds of medical innovations, how's the confidence in the FDA, in the government, in the institutions that are, in some cases, creating more problems in the lives of, of people in this country than they are helping them, What's that going to do to their confidence in leadership, which is already in the toilet? It's not going to get any better, friends. If we don't get this right, the fourth industrial revolution, and I'm not trying to be a, a doomsday. The sky is falling chicken little here. But the fourth industrial revolution, the way this thing is going, the speed and the velocity which with with which this thing is moving, this, this has the, all the right elements to become the last industrial revolution for some time. We could, we could chimera ourselves back to the Stone Age if we're not careful. And I don't want to start over at the Stone Age. I don't want my, my grandchildren to, to have to start over back in the Stone Age. I don't want my nieces and nephews, children to have to start back over and do this all over again. I want to get this right because I believe in the promise of what we're doing in the fourth industrial revolution. But I think our leaders need to get their acts together. We got to change how we think about developing leaders because the way that we've done it for the last 150 years, folks, is broken. It doesn't work. It isn't going to work. Stop spending billions of dollars a year on leadership development retreats and seminars and Harvard classes that don't produce change. we got to figure out a different way, folks. So that's all I've got for episode number one. Tune in next time where we dive into what that solution is for preparing leaders for the fourth industrial revolution. I'm Dr. Chris Grosskirth. This is the Future Focus Leadership Podcast, and I thank you for tuning in. See you in the future.